Welcome back to iGen Politics. This is a podcast that makes politics engaging and relevant for all generations. This is Victor Shee. And I'm Jill Wine Banks. And today's hashtag, Jill's Pin, is a series of people holding hands. And it represents to me the people of Gaza and the people of Israel who are being hurt by the events in the Middle East. And we'll be talking about that with our wonderful guest today. Yeah. Today marks exactly one month and one day since Hamas brutally attacked innocent Israelis, mostly targeting civilians. Hamas filmed themselves killing these civilians and taking innocent hostages. We have also seen the heartbreaking images of cities in Gaza leveled and of the death of innocent Palestinian children and babies. In the meantime, here at home, we've seen an unprecedented rise in both anti-Semitism and Islamophobia, especially on college campuses. And in the thick of all of this is the Biden administration, which is facing tremendous pressure from all sides in terms of how they should respond. And today, just like Joel said, we have the perfect guest with us and someone I'm lucky to know from and learn every day. John Kirby is the coordinator for strategic communications at the National Security Council. Since then, since Hamas has attacked the Israelis, John has been the face of the administration's public-facing response, and he has been doing a phenomenal job explaining how President Biden is responding. Prior to his current position, John served as the in the U.S. Navy as a rear admiral, was the spokesperson for the State Department under President Obama from 2015 to 2017, and was the press secretary at the Pentagon for the first year and a half of the Biden administration, where he did an equally great job of communicating about the issues and the solutions. We are so glad and so honored to have John with us today to help us explain through his great communication skills what is going on in Israel and Gaza, and how President Biden is responding, as well as to talk about, we hope, some other key foreign policy issues and communications issues. John, thank you so much for being with us today. We know how busy your schedule is, so we are very grateful that you took time to be with us today. Happy to be here. Thank you for having me. It's so great to see you. And and we want to talk um, about the Israel-Palestine situation. We're now a little over a month since that brutal Hamas attack on Israel. And there's been a lot of um, misinformation and confusion about, I think, what's going on in the region. So we want to start by just having you give our audience sort of the facts of what exactly happened on October 7th and who was responsible for that attack. Well, Hamas was clearly responsible for that uh, just barbaric series of terrorist attacks. It was actually more than just one attack. Uh, on the 7th of October, uh, coming in uh, across that border into Israel, in some cases using paragliders to to, to drop in on a music festival, uh, which was really a, a, all about uh, peace in the Middle East, uh, and literally do two things, slaughter people and families in front of each other, and take hostages. They took more than 240 hostages. That was all part of the playbook, all part of the design. Uh, as well as the slaughter. I mean, this is a group, and I think it's, you know, anybody uh, uh, desires to, you can get online and look at this group, look at what one of their leaders said just two weeks ago. They still believe, even after those attacks, that Israel has no right to exist and that Israeli citizens should be eliminated from the planet. Um, and they have not, they have not backed away from those, from those truly genocidal goals. 
that is what the Israeli people are facing. That is what the Israeli government was facing on October 7th. And if you just do the ratios, Israel is a small country, uh, but if you ratio it out, this was their 9-11 times three. I mean, it would have, it, it, the equivalent on our 9-11 for the size of the United States would have been tens of thousands of uh, Americans killed. That's what that 1,400 uh, killed uh, looks like and feels like to them. So it's a significant moment. I, I uh, one of the Israeli leaders I had a chance to talk with uh, when I went to Tel Aviv with the president said, you know, this is the third existential threat that we faced. The first was obviously in 47 and then uh, and then again in 73. Um, and this is the third time that the Israeli state truly feels as if they are facing an existential threat to their existence. So uh, a really uh, gruesome, barbaric set of attacks. And uh, and they are right to go after the Hamas leaders the way they are trying to eliminate that threat. Yeah, I mean, you have correctly stated the horror of it. And in addition to the paragliders and the, all the other things, they were filming themselves and then proudly displayed what they did, which to me is incomprehensible. But you mentioned something that I think we should pursue, which is Hamas's main point of being is to eliminate Israel and the Jewish people. So can you even begin to negotiate with Hamas, or do you have to eliminate them and find some other governing force that you could then negotiate with? What do you do in a situation like this? The Israelis believe that they have to eliminate the threat that Hamas poses across that border in Gaza. And that means, according to them and their and their war aims, going against the leadership and eliminating the command and control uh, structure, the governance structure that Hamas has in Gaza, as well as going after the network and fighters. Now, I think everybody understands that you're never gonna eliminate the ideology. We've learned that with our fighting against Al-Qaeda and fighting against ISIS. We have been able to decimate um, and severely degrade these terrorist networks and their ability to resource, train, fund, and operate. But you can't erase the ideology. And I think the Israelis understand that, but they've got to remove the, the, the very specific threat that Hamas poses uh, in, inside Gaza. And then, of course, the questions of what comes after that, that, those are all really valid questions that we're asking ourselves right now. Secretary Blinken uh, is uh, with the G7 in Japan right now. You may have seen the G7 foreign ministers issued a, a unified statement in just the last hours um, recommending humanitarian pauses, but also making it clear that as a G7, we believe that Hamas cannot remain in governance in Gaza, that whatever comes after Hamas, and we don't know the answer to what that looks like, but it can't be them. We can't go back to October 6th. So uh, while we recognize the challenge of the ideology, the hateful ideology, the anti-Semitic ideology, the violent ideology, uh, we also know that you can, in fact, have an impact on their ability to actually govern in Gaza. So one of the things that um, I think a lot of people wondered after that initial uh, October 7th attack is why Israel and its allies, and including, I guess, the U.S., didn't foresee that attack happening with all the sort of intelligence capabilities. And I'm wondering if you could speak to that and if there's anything you can say and on whether you know that raises any concerns and if there's anything being looked into on that sort of intelligence front. Well, Prime Minister Netanyahu has spoken to this uh, as well. He's called it a failure, and he had said that he wants it fully investigated and fully reviewed. And I suspect, well, I don't suspect, I know that the Israeli government will do that. They'll take a hard look at uh, what intelligence gaps and scenes there were uh, and what they missed and, 
they missed it and try to plug those gaps and seams going forward. Obviously, uh, should they want uh, our assistance in that, we'll certainly do that. But we know that they're going to take this uh, seriously. Uh, clearly, there were uh, lack, a lack of information and context about what Hamas was doing. I mean, uh, the, these attacks that they pulled off were very complex. As I said, using paragliders and with a whole strategy for how to take hostages. I mean, they actually have, had a manual book of like how to do it physically, how to get a hostage and how to deal with hostages that are less compliant than others. I mean, this took a months and months, if not a year or more uh, of planning. And so how did that all happen where nobody saw it coming? I, I think we all want to see answers to that. And, and there'll be a time to do that, clearly. Right now, though, uh, the, the focus has got to be on helping uh, the Israelis go after Hamas, making sure they've got the tools and the capabilities to do that, helping humanitarian assistance get in, helping people get out, um, and doing what we can uh, to work with our partners in the region for what a post-conflict Gaza needs to look like. I want to follow up on what you're saying about the humanitarian aid, but you mentioned a manual. Have you actually been able to see the manual? That well, we, we, the, the, the Israelis have, as they've exploited some of the cell phone coverage and some of the electronic devices of these Hamas fighters, they have found those things electronically. They found them uh, in their possession. Wow. Amazing. So, but going back to the humanitarian aid, um, President Biden has been very vocal, strong supporter of Israel and its right to defend itself. Um, but he has insisted on Israel following the rules of war and asking Israel for a humanitarian pause, not a ceasefire, but a pause for humanitarian aid. Can you update us on what's happening on that aspect? Well, he spoke to Prime Minister Netanyahu uh, just yesterday and again reiterated uh, our desire for humanitarian pauses, plural, not singular, uh, to allow for more aid to get deeper into Gaza to people that are in desperate need, as well as provide a, a vehicle, a venue for people to get out, particularly hostages. I mean, we're very focused on trying to negotiate for the release of the hostages. We still have a small number of Americans that are in that population. And the only way you can do that effectively is to stop the fighting temporarily, localize it in geography on the map so that they have safe passage out. So we are still actively talking about that with our Israeli counterparts. Secretary Blinken, again, just left the region also made made uh, those concerns clear. Uh, and there have been pauses in the past that, that the Israelis have agreed to temporary pauses. We got four hostages out so far, two of them Amer Americans, and, and there needed to be pauses in the fighting to allow for their safe passage. So uh, it is possible, it is doable, uh, and we wanna continue to pursue that. I, I do wanna take a moment, you didn't ask this question, but I think it's important for people to understand the difference between a ceasefire and a pause and why we, yes. why we use those phrases. When we yeah. talk about a ceasefire, we're talking about what we would call in the military a general ceasefire, which is both sides lay down their arms and stop fighting for an indefinite period of time so that you can pursue peace talks or a negotiated settlement to the end of the conflict. So a ceasefire uh, is typically a, a precursor step to an end of a war. Uh, we're not advocating for that right now. Uh, we know that Hamas still exists. They still have man in control. Their, their leaders are still uh, alive and, uh, and well and directing operations, and that a ceasefire right now would benefit Hamas and give them breathing space to continue to plan. Uh, and so we agree with our Israeli counterparts that a ceasefire is not in order right now. 
That said, as you and I have been talking, certainly we agree with the, the idea of, of temporary, much shorter in duration, localized, confined uh, on the map to a certain area for specific purposes, i.e. getting hostages out or getting aid in. And we believe that a series of pauses are, is going to be required to get all those hostages out, not just one. So we're, we're working on that uh, very, very keenly. That's extremely helpful. And I'm, I'm here at UCLA and, you know, colleges across the country. I think there's a lot of um, passion around this issue. And I hear two things, which is first, um, a lot of my friends are concerned that the aid going into Israel is killing innocent civilians in Gaza. So first, is there any way to limit what Israel does with the support we give them? Um, and then also, can you address sort of the calls and the really intense calls for a ceasefire? What would you say to the young people out there who are really demanding for that? I think uh, what I want them to understand is that any nation we support with security assistance, whether it's through sales or contributions like what we're doing for Ukraine, anytime we transfer defense articles, weapons, um, there we are guided, we are mandated by law to make sure that that material is being used in compliance with the law of armed conflict. And one of the components of the law of armed conflict is that you have to do everything possible to minimize civilian casualties. You have to you have to respect innocent civilian life and to allow for civilians to move out of harm's way uh, in a safe and efficient way. And that that's baked into the security assistance we provide to any country. And again, even Ukraine. Um, and so that's part of this process. Now, we aren't tying specific conditions to specific missions that we're providing uh, Israel. Uh, it, it's not about conditionality, but there is baked into the process the, the full expectation th that they will abide by the law of armed conflict. And we are constantly in communication with them about prosecuting these operations in accordance with that law. Uh, president has mentioned it in every conversation he's had with Prime Minister Netanyahu, Secretary Blinken stressed that when he was in the region. Uh, and of course, Secretary Austin, for his part, speaking to the Defense Minister of Israel, continues to stress that, as does Jake Sullivan. So that is an ongoing conversation, and we're going to continue to work with them. Now, we recognize that way too many innocent civilians have been killed in this conflict. I mean, many, many thousands of Palestinians have died. Many more have been wounded. More than a million have been displaced from homes. The right number of civilian casualties, just be clear, is zero, none. Now that's a very high bar to meet in a war, uh, but that's that should be the goal, and we can continue to stress that uh, to to our Israeli counterparts uh, uh, every single day that we're that we're talking to them. And I think I missed you had a second question. I think I missed. Oh, it was just, what would you say to the um, college students or people out there who are demanding for a ceasefire? I know you clarified the difference between ceasefire and humanitarian pause, but um, sort of how would you address sort of that crowd of people? Yeah, again, I'd go back to what I said before, making sure we all understand the difference between a ceasefire and a pause. We do favor pauses. We don't favor a general ceasefire at this time um, because we... Because we, we know that Hamas still poses an existential threat to Israel. So if there was a general ceasefire now, and we just, let's just put ourselves in that, you know, uh, we should enter into some sort of peace negotiations with Hamas. And uh, we're not at that point. In fact, to uh, the earlier question we got, I mean, this is not a group that you can negotiate with in yeah. terms of 
a cessation of hostilities. They want to wipe Israel off the map. So a ceasefire right now basically tells Hamas uh, that they get to continue to govern Gaza, that they get to continue to threaten Israel from Gaza, and that their war aims, their strategy, killing Israeli citizens and eliminating the Israeli state is a legitimate warning, which of course it's not. And that's why we don't support a ceasefire. Uh, but I do understand a lot of concern out there about the violence, about the death and destruction. Uh, we share those concerns. Believe me, every single innocent life taken is a tragedy. And we grieve and we mourn with all those families that are grieving and mourning uh, on the Israeli side and on the Palestinian side. As I said, the right number of zero, the right number of civilian casualties is zero. And we're going to keep working with might and main to do everything we can uh, to urge our Israeli counterparts to be even more precise and more discriminant in their in their targeting. So, you know, John, this is an intergenerational podcast. And I, of course, bring a different viewpoint than college students because I've lived through. Well, I don't remember, although I was alive when Israel was formed. Um, I wasn't alive when the Holocaust happened, but to me, this is my living through a Holocaust and through anti-Semitism, which is now rampant. And I want to point out that another good thing that President Biden has done is that he has responded by saying he wants to help those in Gaza. Now, of course, the Hamas is making it harder because they are using civilians as shields. They are putting their underground tunnels and their leadership right under civilians. So it makes it really hard to protect civilians from a military standpoint. Um, you know, I worked in the Pentagon and so I've looked at these kinds of things as to how you can protect civilians. Um, but let's talk a little bit about what could be done by the administration to help the people of Gaza, not Hamas, not the Hamas that's using them, but, but the people who need to get out and need to be protected. Well, so we're, we're uh, doing that uh, as best we can. I mean, first of all, the, the, the main need right now is to get aid in. And thus far, uh, we've been able to get about 650 trucks in through the Rafa crossing. That's that crossing, that border crossing uh, in southern Gaza, northern Egypt, northeast Egypt right there. Um, and 650 sounds like a lot, but it actually is not. Um, when you consider that before the attacks of October 7th, about 500 trucks a day were going into Gaza with various goods and services and, and supplies, um, you know, to, to be here now a month in and, and we've gotten 650. So it's not enough. And it's particularly not enough when you're talking about a war zone. It was one thing to get 500 trucks in through the Rafa crossing every day when things were relatively peaceful. Now the need for food, water, and medicine is so much more acute. So we're working that very, very hard. As you might imagine, it's a more complicated process now that it is a war zone in terms of inspecting these trucks, making sure that what goes in is is what is legitimate humanitarian assistance. Our humanitarian aid organizations on the ground are also under the stress and pressure of the bombs that are dropping. And so that their work is, is a lot more complicated, uh, but we're pushing on this very, very hard. And as for getting people out, uh, we have been somewhat successful in the last week or so in getting several hundred foreign nationals, uh, wounded Palestinians, 
Palestinians, our, our friends in Egypt, they, they want to make sure that who's coming across their border is legitimately supposed to come across their border. So there's a vetting and inspection process for individuals as well. Um, and there was even um, short periods of time over the last 24 hours where uh, the Israelis allowed some uh, uh, people to leave northern Gaza uh, across land uh, access in, into in, into Israel. So that's a good thing. Uh, but we're working on that very, very hard. The, the one thing I want to, you didn't ask this, but I, I do think it's important to, to note that we're not advocating, there's been some disinformation out there, we are not advocating for some sort of permanent resettlement of Palestinians outside of Gaza. That is not our policy, that we are not pursuing that. Obviously, we welcome the opportunity to get wounded Palestinians out who need medical care. But Gaza is their home, and they should have every right to go back home uh, when they want to, whether, whether, whether the conflict's done or not. It's home. And we aren't suggesting, we aren't promoting, we aren't pushing, but we don't support any sort of permanent resettlement outside of Gaza. So can you provide an update on um, Americans who are still being held hostage in the Gaza region? How many are left? How many have we gotten out? Um, are there any Americans in Gaza but not yet hostages yet? Sort of give us an update on that end. Several hundred uh, uh, U.S. citizens have been able, and their family members, have been able to depart uh, through the Rafah crossing through uh, southern Gaza uh, in the last several days. There are there are several hundred more that that we still are, are trying to get out. Um, it, the the flow of people out is not constant, and since over 24, 30 hours, we really haven't gotten anybody out, not just the citizens, even foreigners. But a few days before that, you know, there was a flow of, of several hundred, you know, going out uh, in, in fashion. Um, so we're still working on that. And there's still a lot of work to be done. And it's not just U.S. citizens. It's foreign nationals from many countries. On the hostage front, as you know, we were able to get, secure the release of two American citizens, a mother and daughter, uh, a, a couple of weeks ago. Um, we have not been able to secure the release of, a, of additional American hostages since then, but we are still working at that very, very hard. As for the total number, it's less than 10 Americans that we know are still being held hostage by Hamas. We don't have perfect visibility as to uh, where they all are, what condition they're in. We're trying to get that information, that granularity now, uh, but it's difficult. Um, and of course, there's some 240 other hostages as well from many different countries, including Israel, that we're also trying to secure the release for. Uh, that's taken um, uh, a lot of effort in, in, in dip diplomacy circles, you know, particularly with, with countries in the region who have open lines of communication with Hamas, which we don't, such as Qatar. Um, and so we're continuing to work that, that hard. That is another reason why this comes full circle back to the idea of humanitarian pauses. It's why we are advocating so strongly for humanitarian pauses, because if you have a pause in place, uh, then you can barter for the movement of hostages out um, and perhaps an exchange of Palestinians back in that Hamas wants. So we're working, uh, we're working on all that right now. So in terms of, um, you said we didn't ask a question, which was actually on our list, I wanna say, but <laughs> is there anything else that our audience and Victor and I should know? What, what, what are we missing? What What's an important point for us to understand about what's going on, what America's role is and should be? I think it's important for people to, again, remember the 7th of October um, and remember 
the shock that was felt literally around the world um, uh, when 1,400 innocent people were slaughtered, many of them in their homes, parents seeing their children slaughtered in front of their faces, children seeing their parents slaughtered in front of their faces, rape and torture uh, of an unimaginable scale. And, and, and just remember the threat that Hamas uh, portrays. This is a terrorist organization. And I would think that that Americans uh, obviously understand that because we've, we've lived through that ourselves on 9-11. We know what it's like to be attacked uh, on our homeland who just want to slaughter and kill and maim. There's no other strategic goal other than to just kill and to wipe Israel off the face of the map. And I think it's important to remember how this started. Um, I also think it's important to remember that the United States, under President Biden's leadership, has really been shepherding um, not only supporting Israel in their right to defend themselves, their responsibility to defend themselves, but also leading the world in terms of trying to alleviate the suffering on the Palestinian side. It is because of President Biden's personal involvement and leadership and conversations he's had with King uh, Abdullah Jordan, President Sisi of Egypt, uh, obviously Prime Minister Nahu and his war cabinet that has allowed humanitarian assistance to get in. Not enough, we admit, but American leadership has really made the difference in getting that assistance in. And American leadership has also made all the difference in helping get people out, whether they hostages, again, small number, not enough, uh, but also get uh, uh, American citizens and other citizens of foreign countries out that want to leave through the Rafa crossing. It really has been something that the United States has been driving. Uh, we, 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 we understand the threat that is facing Israel. We want to help them alleviate that. But we also do understand the suffering that the Palestinian people are going through. And as President Biden has said repeatedly, each and every death here is a tragedy. And we certainly do grieve with all those families. But th this is it's a very complex situation, one which, again, um, uh, from an Israeli perspective, uh, feels and frankly is uh, existential in scope. You know, I, we I could talk to you. Go ahead, I just want to say, I, I hope that your generation, Victor, is listening to what John is saying about the accomplishments of the Biden administration, because I wonder if when they're calling for ceasefire, it's sort of like calling for defunding the police. They don't really mean defund the police. We need the police. They meant transfer some funds to other sources that might do better in certain situations. And that John's definition of the difference between a humanitarian pause to help the people of Gaza who are not involved in trying to destroy the state, um, to give them a chance for an election. They haven't had an election in 16 years. Hamas has been there. Let them choose their leaders and their governors. Um, so I, I, I hope they're listening to this and we'll learn from that. But go ahead with your I, question. Sorry. I'm, 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 I'm very glad you mentioned that, uh, and um, that because that's a really, really important point. Uh, Hamas does not represent the aspirations of the Palestinian people. Uh, they have been governed with an iron fist, and uh, the majority of the Palestinians who live in Gaza they don't feel represented by Hamas. Hamas doesn't uh, doesn't look after their aspirations and their goals for peace and security to be able to live. Um, you know, in a Palestinian state. That is not something Hamas is pushing. Hamas is only pushing death to Israel, death to uh, Israeli citizens. And I think that's an important. 
Absolutely. And we could talk to you for hours about this, but we know your time is limited. And so we want to ask you one final question, which is, you know, as anyone who has listened to or watched this so far, you know, you provide so much clarity and, and you're such a great communicator for this administration. To end on a lighter note, what makes a great communicator and what have you found to be some of the challenges in communication now and sort of how have you gone through that? Um, the, uh, I think to the first, uh, I, I, I certainly, I, I, uh, I, I don't proclaim any kind of special expertise here. Um, I, I just try to talk the way I talk to my mom. And, um, and I think if, if I can uh, answer questions that, uh, that I know that, uh, that she'll understand, um, then I feel like I'm doing my job. And, and quite frankly, after every time I either go on TV or brief, I get a text from her. Uh, usually with a, a pretty a pretty fair set of criticisms about how well or how poorly I did. So I just, I think it's, I think the key, particularly these days is be a talker, not a speaker. Um, and as for the, the, the challenges of communicating, the, the, the greatest historic myth about communicating uh, is that you've actually done it. And, and I think that that's still true today. Uh, we, you, you can't just assume that when you, like when I'm doing this with you guys, which is great and I'm enjoying this, but I can't just assume that that this is a one and done, that 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 I don't have to continue to talk about the efforts that the Biden administration is pursuing to help Israeli uh, citizens eliminate this threat and help the Palestinians in Gaza get life saving food, water, medicine. It can't end today with this podcast. I'm going to I have to do this again and again and again uh, in coming days. And and you, you've got to be iterative. You have to be willing to continue to have conversations with people. People don't want access to information. They want access to conversation. And if I'm not providing a, man, a vehicle through that, then I'm not doing my job for the president and for the administration. The other aspect of this myth of communicating is you got to be humble enough to, to, to know that, um, that your, your message, as you perceive it and deliver it, may not be received and resonate on the other end the way you meant it to. So be humble in communicating and be willing to listen and to change the way you're talking about things um, uh, uh, based on how it's being perceived uh, on the other side. And, um, so I think humility and listening are the two most critical aspects to communicating well right now. It's certainly great advice. Um, we had so many questions left about the rise in anti-Semitism and Islamophobia about what's happening in Ukraine because Israel sort of pushed it off the front page. But, you know, the threat to America, if Putin should make any progress in Ukraine and the threat to the European Union and to NATO is really severe. And so we hope that you will come back and talk to us about Ukraine and about um, all these other things that we have on our mind because you do explain in a way that I think people understand and those who don't aren't listening. If, if they have their ears opened, you can't be responsible for people not hearing the message you are saying, because I think it's really clear. And we thank you and we thank President Biden for being there to do this right now. Thank you so much for having me. And absolutely, you just let me know when I can come back and I'd be happy to do it. You're right, there is an awful lot of things to talk about, not just in the Middle East, but around the world, particularly on the European continent. And I am absolutely available anytime you need me. Great. Thank, Thank you, you so much, John. It's so great to see you. You too. See you guys.
Jill, that was such a great episode with John. And like you said, I mean, he just provided so much clarity and um, really, I think, helped debunk a lot of the myths and disinformation out there. But there's so much that we didn't get to, um, including Ukraine, like we mentioned, um, and also the rise of Islamophobia and anti-Semitism on college campuses where I'm at and also just across the country more generally. Um, so let's talk about that a little bit and sort of maybe let's start with Ukraine and sort of that front. What, what have you felt um, in, in sort of these last few months and, and sort of what are you looking at for in Ukraine? So as someone who um, has looked at what happened in Germany, uh, both because I lost relatives in that um, Holocaust, but also just because I worked for the Assembly of Captive European Nations, which was a group composed of the leaders of the countries that had been part of um, a free Europe, had been independent, but were absorbed by what became the USSR, the Soviet Union. And so I've looked at what Russia's imperial territorial uh, aspirations are, and it will not stop with Ukraine. If Russia, Putin succeeds in taking territory in Ukraine, it is going to go on to non-NATO countries and then to NATO countries and then to America. I feel personally threatened. And um, I think that what is happening in the House with the funding for both Israel and Ukraine, which we didn't get to talk to John about, but everybody's aware that there is chaos in the leadership of the Republican Party who controls the House, which has to start our funding, and that they aren't funding what needs to be funded for Ukraine or for Israel. And so we've got to, and, and in fact, for the whole government, the government is going to right. shut down like 10 days or less. I guess yeah. And there's, there's no ending. I mean, there, there is no signs that they are anywhere close to reaching any sort of agreement uh, to fund Ukraine. And it's just, you know, this is the Republican party. I mean, like the Republican party is siding with Russia, essentially. I mean, it, it is crazy to imagine that we've gotten to a point where now you have Republicans that are enabling Putin and, and his aspirations by not funding one of our closest partners, Ukraine. And it's it's just shocking. But another one of those instances where you just think about how far the Republican Party has fallen. So when you say the Republican Party, this is not the Republican Party that no. I, yeah. where we could have conversations. This right. is sort of like Hamas. You can't negotiate with them. They have yeah. a hardline position and they aren't caving. They want to take <clears throat> Um, the funding for IRS in order to give Israel funding. And that's economically a stupid move because the funding of IRS leads to income. It will earn more than it is funded at because they will collect taxes that exceed their funding. So it's not even economically smart. It is simply a way to say, oh, Republican base of rich people, we're protecting you. So it, it's really... It's horrible. And, and I'm sorry yeah. about that, but I am really keenly aware of what I think is a threat from Russia that will exceed Ukraine. And our democracy depends on there being democracies elsewhere. And Ukraine is a democracy now. And we need to protect Ukraine and we need to protect Israel. And so I'm hoping John will come back so we can talk more about what needs to be done in Ukraine and Absolutely. whether the stalemate can last very long or what's going to happen there. I don't know. You know. 
I was I was just having a conversation with a friend the other day about um you know he he was basically expressing how he was a little bit tired of President Biden continuing to support foreign affairs while doing quote nothing at home. And I asked him, well, he's actually doing both. He's both helping. I think a lot of people think that, well, you know, why is America helping Ukraine and Israel when there's so much going on at home? And that's true. But there's President Biden is also doing at home that I think is bare, you know, it's it's worth remembering and taking a step back that we can do both at once. We can help Ukraine and their effort to fight for democracy and Israel and their effort to eliminate Hamas and terrorism, which we are doing. And I think that's that's hopefully everyone is supportive of that. But at the same time, President Biden is also doing a lot at home to benefit Americans. He's not forgetting about people here in America. He This week, he uh, just announced this billion, uh, $16 billion infrastructure project that would fund uh, rail uh, in the Eastern Corridor. I mean, huge uh, announcement. Last week, he had some significant steps, and we can talk about this, to combat anti-Semitism on college campuses, as well as forming this first uh, ever nationwide task force to combat Islamophobia so there's a lot that he's doing at home to protect all of us. So, you know, before you say, well, you know, why are we helping so many other countries? We're doing both at once. I think that's um, something that we should all remember. To say nothing of the fact that I really do see a threat to America from yes. the Russian takeover of Ukraine. So that right. Right. Ukraine to stop Putin now protects us. But it, yeah. it also, when you talk about at home, Let's talk about what happened yesterday uh, in the elections because yeah. a very big night for the Democrats. They were very successful on the issues that President yes. Biden supports. So all this talk about um, polls, skip the polls. Right. Look at what voting <laughs> did. Really, yes. voting shows yeah, no. where America is. There, there's, there's a couple of great lines I saw. First, Stephanie Rule tweeted, polls suggest... People or elections prove. And I said, yes. And then I, I read you this last night, but Chris Hayes had this great tweet that I think really captures our moment. The political experience of the Biden era for Democrats is extended periods of intense anxiety about terrible polling, occasionally punctuated by strangely positive election nights. And then the cycle repeats. And that's what we saw last night. That's what we saw in 2022, exactly a year ago this time, that's what we saw in 2020, where all the polls and headlines were saying how Biden is doomed, how Democrats is, are doomed. But look what happened last night. I mean, we can just do a, just a quick summary for everyone who um, might not have followed all of the elections going on. But starting in Kentucky, Andrew Bashir ran for re-election. He won that race, uh, beating a Trump endorsed and Mitch McConnell, uh, what they consider a Mitch McConnell prodigy. Um, and so Andy Bashir won that election. And, as a and remember, he won by a bigger margin this time. Margin than his original, and Trump won by huge margins in the last yes. one. So you have somebody who's maybe the people of Kentucky are learning. And although I'm not sure the Republicans are learning, because if they were, <laughs> they change their policies. But go ahead on the summary, Victor. Sorry. I mean, and one other thing to add about Kentucky is that um, Republicans spent $30 million trying to attach. Andy Bashir to Joe Biden, and it did not work. I mean, like you said, the margins were bigger this time around. But um, other states, Ohio, uh, they have now enshrined abortion to the Constitution um, and also uh, allowed basically anyone over the age of 21 to use uh, marijuana legally and recreationally. So uh, Ohio has passed both ballot referendums. Uh, Virginia, Democrats have retained control of the Senate, which that in itself would have uh, prevented any sort of abortion ban that Glenn Youngkin wanted to take into effect. But even better, they also uh, flipped the House of Delegates. So uh, uh, Virginia now has a uh, blue House and a blue Senate, which is great news for that state and preventing Glenn Youngkin from 
taking control. And then Pennsylvania had some great news as well uh, with their Supreme Court electing another Democrat. So now the majority is 5-2. And they also elected their first, Philadelphia elected its first ever uh, Black woman uh, as mayor. And so there is a lot of great news um, out there. And, uh, you know, it's just, I feel optimistic. What about you, Jill? I, well, I'm a perpetual optimist. I <laughs> always, yeah. I, I always see the glasses half full. And I I am optimistic, be, partly because the alternative is so disastrous. I cannot believe that people, your generation or mine, want to see the end of democracy, want to see the end of rights. You have less rights than I had at your age. Well, at your age, no. I, I Abortion, for example, was not um, legal when I was your age. But shortly, well, maybe by the time I was your age, it was. Um, in any event, people do have less rights now than when you were born. Wow. And that is really sad and dangerous. And if you look at the agenda, and it's not even a platform because the Republicans haven't had a platform for a while, but the things that they want to do are take away, take away, give to the rich, take from the middle class, and yet the middle class is supporting some of the Republicans. And so it's it's time for facts to get through. Uh, that's why John Kirby was such a great guest, because yes. he really does talk in a way that you just sort of go, oh, that makes total sense. I right, get that. Right. A very good spokesperson. Um, he must have been a great admiral. I mean, he's a great leader. Yes. So um, uh, very impressive performance. Yes, that was a great episode. And for, um, you know, hopefully last night's results will just, you know, for anyone who's concerned and worried, um, you know, maybe maybe we're in a better position than the media and some of the pundits and polls want us to be in. Um, so, you know, that doesn't mean we don't put in the work. There's still a lot of work that needs to be done. 2024 is not easy, but, um, you know, maybe it's best to ignore some of those polls that spell uh, doom for uh, our country in 2024. Um, and like Jill said, we are so grateful that um, John Kirby uh, joined us today on this episode of IGN Politics. We hope it uh, clarified some of the situation that is going on right now in Israel and Palestine. If you know any college students or if you know any young person in your life, send this to, send this episode to them because uh, there is a lot of misinformation right now going on on social media. And I think the facts matter and that's exactly what John Kirby gave us today. Uh, we will be back next week for another episode of iGen Politics. But in the meantime, you can uh, follow us wherever you follow your podcast, whether it's on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, uh, wherever you, you listen, we are there. You can also find us on YouTube if you watch our episode on YouTube. It's at youtube.com slash Politicon. Be sure to subscribe and like uh, this video so you don't miss uh, any other future episodes. Um, and we will see you next week. Thank you, everyone, for joining us. And please stay safe and healthy.